This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. My name is Lois Clausen, and I'm an artist and postdoctoral fellow in the Critical Media Arts Studio in Simon Fraser University's School of Interactive Arts and Technology. I'm recording this interview from Coast Salish Territory on the west coast of Turtle Island in what's commonly referred to as Vancouver, Canada. This is the unceded and traditional territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Today we're discussing a book about international displacement of people. It's important to acknowledge that Indigenous people here continue to experience displacement from their traditional and treaty lands, as well as from their communities and families as a result of deliberate strategies to produce Canada as a white settler state. Decolonial efforts by researchers are inspired by Indigenous research methodologies, and the book we're discussing today is an important contribution to decolonizing research and representation in the context of forced migration. The book we're discussing is Documenting Displacement, Questioning Methodological Boundaries in Forced Migration Research. It's edited by one of my guests today, Katarzyna Grabska, as well as Christina R. clark Kazak. It was released this year, 2022, by McGill-Queens University Press in their Refugee and Forced Migration Studies series. The book is an edited compilation of essays by a number of international and interdisciplinary researchers working in a variety of sites around the globe. With me today are three of the chapter authors, including Katarzyna or Kash. Kasha, who did double duty in both writing a chapter and co-editing the book. Kasha Grabska is a social anthropologist and filmmaker. She's a senior researcher at the Peace Research Institute in Oslo and a visiting professor at the Institute of Ethnology, University of Neuchâtel, Switzerland. Since since 2002, she's carried out long-term research among Noi. Noor South Sudanese refugees in Sudan, Egypt, and Kenya, as well as South Sudan. Also with us today is Adnan El-Bahmid. Adnan is a Syrian PhD candidate at McGill University School of Social Work. His, re- his doctoral research focuses on Syrian refugee fathers and their resettlement in Canada. He's a research associate with the McGill Refugee Research Group and Global Child McGill, and he's affiliated with the Sherpa Centre in Montreal. Nihal Soganshi is also part of this interview. Nihal is currently completing doctoral studies in social anthropology at Pantheon University of Social and Political Sciences in Athens. She works at the Home for Cooperation, a multicultural community center in the buffer zone of Nicosia. 
The book Documenting Displacement contributes to the field of forced migration studies by offering an analysis of the innovations and research methodologies that have developed in response to the ethical demands inherent in research with people whose legal status and even survival are threatened. Something that's particularly valuable about this book is the way it considers creative and arts-based methods which in many cases have developed out of necessity for new methodologies where traditional social sciences and qualitative methods have fallen short. In this way, it's an important text for anyone interested in the use of arts-based methods in research or or what in Canada we call research creation. I'd like to hear from you all about your use of creative methods in, or art in your projects, but first I want to learn more about how the book came about. So my first question is for Kasha. You edited this book with the Canadian researcher Christina clark Kazak, who's worked tire- tirelessly and productively to raise standards of ethical research methods and forced migration studies on an international scale. Can you tell us about why you and Dr. Clark Kazak felt that this book needed to be assembled and published? And what was the process in bringing all these writers and texts together? Hello, everyone. Um, Hello, Louise. This is a pleasure to be a part of this conversation today, um, together with our uh, some of the contributing authors to the um, edited volume. Uh, Christina Clark Kazak and I have been meeting at in the context of the International Association for the Study of Forced Migration for many, many years. And we've known each other for for many years uh, as researchers, as colleagues in the field, um, and as members of this association. In 2018, um, uh, we both participated in a biannual conference uh, in Thessaloniki. Um, And at this conference, what we've noticed was that there was an incredible number of panels that talked uh, to the themes of uh, ethics in research, methods, um, knowledge production, different ways of knowing. Uh, I myself, together with um, another colleague, uh, Cindy Horst, organized a series of panels that talked specifically to the um, creative methods um, in forced migration and refugee studies uh, research. Um, Christina, Uh, on the other hand, uh, had several um, interventions that related to ethics. So we joined our forces and um, talked about the possibility of writing something together because we felt that the issues around ethics, um, around knowledge creation, around questioning um, the huge um, inequalities in the research process, especially in the context of um, uh, displacement, forced migration, refugee studies, Um, were issues that were being um, more and more addressed by different researchers coming really from different fields. So it wasn't only anthropology, but it's more of a classical discipline that looks at these hierarchies um, in in the knowledge creation process. Um, So uh, towards the end of 2018, uh, Christina and I agreed uh, to collaborate on this project. And we, first of all, uh, reached out to uh, colleagues and uh, authors who presented their chapters, uh, their chapters, their papers at that time at the conference in Thessaloniki. So really, many of the authors that you see in the book are actually uh, um, colleagues uh, with whom, uh, whom we've known for some time or whose work we've been fascinated with and who's contributed um, to the different discussions around ethics Um, responsible research, um, uh, the whole take about, uh, you know, who produces knowledge and for whom and in what ways. Uh, And then we reached out to others um, whom we've met through different networks, Christina through her Canadian networks. Uh, So, for example, Adnan, this is how Adnan, um, who is part of the conversation today, um, comes, um, uh, comes to the book. Uh, I've met Nihal at a conference, um, uh, of an um, anthropological association in Belfast um, in 2019. And we've, um, uh, so we've collected this group of uh, really incredible authors. As you see, uh, we have 14 chapters in the book, but the chapter uh, where Adnan um, is, is part of uh, has uh, several authors. Uh, and you see that, that this is a collective way of both writing the book, the edited volume, Um, but also um, the approach to the chapters themselves. Um, 
So uh, yes, so that that's the process, and that's this is how the texts came together. I would like to emphasize maybe two other things that relate really to the essence of the book. While Christina and I, we were of course the editors, the co-editors, the the people who tech, who, who who took the responsibility for for bringing the whole volume together. Uh, I think what we found really incredibly uh, invigorating and stimulating in this process was the type of collaborations and innovations and kind of creative um, approaches that the authors themselves brought to the table. Um, So this book uh, brings a collection of um, cross-disciplinary critical reflections on how we can understand uh, how knowledge is produced in the context of displacement, but also what are the other ways of knowing, what are the other embodied sensory uh, ways of knowing. And that comes very much, as you said, um, you know, Louise, at the beginning, through the kind of collaborative, creative research uh, that some of our authors uh, speak to. Thank you. That So it sounds like it really grows out of a very rich um, uh, collegial research field um, and is really trying to um, address the diversity that's emerging from the field of researchers who are attending to forced migration research these days. Thank you. Adnan, your chapter opens the book. It seems like a good beginning because it describes some of the unintended or unanticipated challenges um, that we find inside some large-scale, even well-funded, longitudinal, community-based research or CBR projects. We learned from it um, some of the unexplored challenges um, inherent in CBR. The chapter takes a unique perspective, though, and it describes the impact of CBR on those who are tasked with administering this kind of standardized research, um, who, in the case of um, your project, were peer researchers from refugee or diasporic communities themselves. You're one of the of the research associates in this study, as well as the, a writer, like uh, Kasha was saying, of a large group that authored the chapter. So I wondered if you could situate the chapter for us. What were the roles of the associate or peer researchers in the larger CBR study? And how and why did you come together as a group to write this chapter inside of the larger study? Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Um, uh... Um, first, uh, the, the, the general study um, was the Syrian integration and long-term health outcomes for similar refugees. Uh, uh, a four-year uh, longitudinal study led by Michaela Hanley and other uh, PIs uh, from four uh, or three sites, three provinces in Canada. It was a collaboration between uh, academics, researchers in the field of forced migration, integration, and refugee studies, um, policymakers, and practitioners. Um, um, some of them um, in the health, some of them in the mental health uh, field. It was uh, one of the first, I would say, um, uh, studies that uh, examined the Syrian refugee, early Syrian refugee integration. Um, and it was an opportunity um, to implement community-based uh, research. Um, so I was part of the um, of the planning for the uh, the, the project, and then uh, designing the study and recruiting, and then try to work with uh, community partners to uh, build um, advisory uh, groups. Um, what's unique about this project that it brought uh, practitioners, policymakers, academics all together and work together, besides uh, uh, having peer uh, researchers. Uh, what brought the, the chapter to to the discussion is, um, as mentioned in the in the chapter, so uh, Syrian community, the targeted population for the project, is diverse different backgrounds, different cultures, different religious beliefs, and therefore they have different also point of view, views about the conflict back home. 
And we as peer researchers are not an exception for uh, from this diversity. So we came from different backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, different belief systems, and different migration pathways. Um, Throughout our first year, we were like, uh, and I have to, I have to give the credit for Michaela and Jill Hanley. Uh, both were emphasizing that we need to meet, make sure that the well-being of the peer researchers uh, there is uh, their priority first. And I have to give also a big credit to my colleague Anna Oda, who's the first author of the chapter, who was the one who is coordinating the project and running all the tasks on running the project and thinking about what should come from the from the project. So we came with the idea that we, as we peer researchers, we face uh, unique challenges. Yes, the chapter is a continuing um, discussion about the insider-outsider uh, position of peer researchers, uh, but um, it gives us a, a unique uh, um, situation to discuss it from our point of view as people who the first time sometimes do research some of them were like overwhelmed by research some of them were just pushed to do a research because they believe they need they, they want to do uh, research and um uh, as uh, as in the chapter stated it was um it was different challenges also can be categorized as insider and outsider the insider part of it can be also categorized as personal and interpersonal. And I can talk about this later if you, if you want. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm wondering a little bit more about um, what the impact of these debriefing methods that were built into the study, um, what was the impact on the peer researchers? And these methods included creative activities, um, which are featured um, in the chapter, even some repre- uh, representations of them. Um, so, um, yeah, do you want to speak a little bit more about the impact of that on uh, the researchers as individuals? Yeah, uh, I I think one of the uh, um, one of the things that I felt uh, I've been involved with different community based research, and uh, one of the things that I felt valued is having these debriefing uh, sessions where we uh, talk about challenges related to the research, but also, and somehow it's a challenge related to our to our work or about us and working in this project. It's about we entering the field with our emotions, with our prerequisite no, pre-knowledge, and with our judgment to the to the situation, plus when we leave the the the, the field or when we you've done with uh, with this, it's um, I don't describe it as a therapeutic sessions, but it was a debriefing where we felt valued, listened, and we can um, be advised. Uh, and in some cases, there were like uh, a monthly uh, sessions about self-care also run by a uh, professional uh, mental health uh, practitioner, um, uh, uh, Professor Susan, who's like well-known and doing this kind of work with uh, um, immigration officers and people who work in the field field course migration. So all these put together how this was um, a new way of first uh, making sure the, uh, the, uh, the knowledge that we produce is produced in a, in a, in a, in a good way first. And the second, it's, uh, it's a new way of introducing uh, how uh, um, we can tackle issues around research bias and uh, being part of a community. Thank you. I'm going to move on to Nihal. Um, Your chapter comes later in the book in the section, Reimagining Displacement Research Through Creative Collaborative Methodologies. It describes how you wrote it as an outcome of your doctoral research, which included fieldwork with displaced populations in North Cyprus. 
Can you set up the chapter for us um, by telling us a little more about your research site and what you felt needed to be learned from this complex cultural and political setting? Um, dear Louise, thank you uh, very much. Uh, before I start, I would just uh, like to say that it's a pleasure to be on the New Books Network interview. And before uh, as well, I should say that writing this chapter um, was a mentally stimulating and a really uh, self-reflexive journey. And I would like to thank Kasia and Christina once again uh, for the opportunity. Um, I'm from Cyprus and my research site uh, is North Cyprus. And I focus uh, on North Cyprus as a border situation and ask how current locality and temporality produce creative tactical forms to collage belonging, particularly in the period post-2003 semi-opening of crossing points, which were closed since 1974 intercommunal violent um, conflict. Uh, 20th century witnessed, just like many other centuries, the mass displacement of many communities who were on the margins of the modern nation, which was followed by a process of gathering. And North Cyprus has become one of those places where diverse groups of people forcibly fled from and also gathered them. In my research, I attempt to explore the dynamics of this process of gathering, asking how the communities of North Cyprus collage homes resist the precarity of political non-recognition and belong to this divided locality characterized with a long period of limbo. And I think that the context North Cyprus is situated in enables us to really explore how belonging is co-created through every day where tongues, crossing regulations, identity cards, and foreign currencies come into dialogue with embarrassment, fantasies, songs, uh, and nostalgia. And this context enables us to ask how can creative tactical forms of everyday resist the contested nature of this polity and how our identities, borders, and culture entwined in histories of political violence and displacement. Um, Louise, we cannot. I got it. (laughs) You describe how there are overarching ethical concerns in your research, uh, since your participants were friends or people with whom you've already had affinities. On the other hand, your affinity to the people drew you more to use more expressive and subjective methods. Can you describe how you came to use creative methods to overcome or maybe make the most of these relationships um, to the participants and their situation? Um, So during fieldwork from February 16 to February 19, I had realized that participants had difficulty engaging with topics um, related to displacement and and the trauma of, of war. So... I sought for a while alternative methods that might foster this kind of engagement. I wanted to achieve an active participatory research method in which participants would become part of the creative thinking process and actors of the study. And embedding creativity into a social process while separating research from everyday life Um, These methods um, uh, led me to think critically about agency, creativity, and human relationships. Because especially early in the research, I really juggled between the professionalism required by the discipline and certain norms expected from me as someone coming from the community. I felt that I should keep a certain professional distance, but after some time, deeper bonds formed between me and some of the participants that made it problematic to simply refer to them as participants. Uh, People knew, of course, about uh, my research and studies, but after four years of passing by a shop, if one day a person tells you all about their personal problems, How do you, as a researcher, distinguish what becomes part of writing? And it really brings up uh, the question, can we really separate fieldwork 
clearly and rigidly from everyday life. And this did not seem possible for personal bonds and mutual communications, uh, made it very difficult to draw precise boundaries. So when I refer to a friend in my writing, it's indeed an intentional reference to a mutual communication that goes beyond asking questions to acquire information or knowledge. So the participants were not merely informants whom I valued only for their ability to provide information. And this certainly carries ethical implications because how do you analyze information uh, you get from someone whom you consider as your friend? And on a similar note, who was I to give voice to their experiences? I could approach with empathy, but I could only make sense of these experiences and thoughts through my own subjectivity. And I think this tells us a lot about why the alternative arts-based methods change the, the course of my research. Yeah. And you also describe working with the Hisar Art Collective run by the Turkish Cypriot artist Asik Mene. Can you tell us more about what it was like to work in collaboration with an artist group within an anthropology project? How did the participants um, understand the collaboration? I'm wondering, did they participate because it was an art activity or because it was a research project? Um. I think I should firstly uh, say that this collaboration uh, really required building a prior relationship and familiarity with the participants and uh, with the art collective as mutual trust and understanding do take time uh, to form. And I should also emphasize that Presenting myself not just as someone doing research, but also as someone from Cyprus who wanted to understand more about her own community helped greatly to foster intimate conversations. So as I began to understand the participants better, I began to understand more about myself too. And I had already developed these close relations with a number of people, which then made it possible uh, for these uh, collaborations to work. At the same time, I think that producing an artwork or being part of an artistic project was also an incentive for some people to join. Uh, through the collage workshops, they produced a creative piece at the end of the process, which was meaningful uh, for some people. And for the effective garage, the people who gave objects to be placed in the garage we're very interested to see these objects in a different setting, especially in the buffer zone, which carries a very different uh, meaning for a lot of people. On the other hand, for the passerbys, people, let's say for the festival audience, I think they were interested because it was an activi artistic activity, part of a festival and also because they saw objects that at some point in life they may have had or used, which attracted them even more uh, to this installation. Thank you so much. Kasha, your chapter is also in the section about research and creative methodologies. In it, you describe participatory research approaches that resulted in the production of two documentary films, Time to Look at Girls, Migrants in Bangladesh and Ethiopia from 2015, and its longer version, Two Girls, from 2016. The chapter chronicles a complex project that involved three main researchers, yourself, Nicoletta Del Franco, and Mariana Deret, that took place over a number of years in Bangladesh, Ethiopia, and Sudan. Can you set up for us the project by telling us how the team came together and what you were aiming to reveal in the research and the films? This uh, project, um, Time to Look at Girls, uh, came uh, from a collab not collaboration, but really sort of uh, coincidental uh, encounters uh, with, um, first of all, Marina Dere, who is a feminist anthropologist uh, whom I met for the first time in 2011 in Khartoum at the Ahfat University for Women. 
uh, at the conference. And then Nicoletta Del Franco, who is um, also a feminist um, anthropologist uh, who's worked for years in Bangladesh, so she had a very long-standing experience. Um, she worked on issues related to adolescence and and um, and the movement of um, and kind of changing changing patterns of adolescence in the context of Bangladesh. Um, she did her PhD at the University of Sussex, and this is where we met, uh, where I was uh, finishing my PhD. Uh, we had the same supervisor, Anne Whitehead, Professor Anne Whitehead, um, who became an advisor to our project. Um, and we all, the three, the four of us, so Marina Derech, um, Nicoletta, uh, Anne Whitehead, and myself, we came together at a workshop uh, in 2013, I believe, um, uh, that was uh, organized, um, 2011, sorry, that was organized uh, um, at the University of Sussex and talked about some of the issues related to migration of youth. And we realized um, very quickly that at this time, uh, so we are talking, you know, 2011, 2012, there's attention to young people migrating, but young people migrating are viewed mainly as young men migrating. So there's no attention to, to, to young women, to the movement of girls. At the same time, uh, through our own um, research projects, so Marina has a longstanding experience in Ethiopia, uh, Nicoletta in Bangladesh, and I myself um, in South Sudan and in Sudan, uh, we knew uh, that girls uh, were migrating or, or were being forced uh, to, 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 to move or were forcibly displaced for a variety of reasons, as much as boys were, but they were completely invisible in this, in this research. So one of our goals in the project um, that we eventually came to write together and got the funding um, was to really uncover what was going on with these girls. Who are these girls uh, moving um, by themselves independently within countries, so within Bangladesh, within Ethiopia, but also across the borders. Uh, so here we looked at, I looked at the case of uh, girls from Ethiopia and Eritrea moving to Sudan. And we wanted in that inquiry, um, we wanted to understand better um, how uh, this independent movement of girls across borders um, or within country, but across different regional um, locations uh, brings changes or influences their transitions to adolescence. So this is really the focus of the research. Um, and as feminist researchers, we came to that project uh, really insisting on um, on on doing it uh, um, using feminist methodologies, working with these methods. We've always worked with them very closely in our uh, respective research before. So we set up this project in that way that really tried to look at the experiences of these uh, uh, girls and young women from their own perspective. And in the research project, um, in each of the sites, um, young women who migrated as adolescent girls, but also adolescent girls themselves, um, became part of the research. Uh, I think similarly to what Adnan was describing in his collaboration um, uh, in Canada, where they were not assistants on the project, but they really became um, co-researchers um, in the project. So, so this was one of the ways in which we tried to really address some of these huge imbalances um, in the research project uh, uh, in power relations between, you know, this kind of Western, um, um, well, middle age, I suppose, uh, uh, white uh, women researchers, established women researchers, and these very marginalized uh, girls who, you know, they were very surprised that we even wanted to talk to them because they said, you know, why are you talking to us? It's nobody talks to us about our experiences. So how to, it was a challenge, how to bring them into a discussion where they felt that um, that they were really part of a discussion rather than uh, us focusing on them uh, exclusively. Um, so the, the the idea of the film um, or films, because in fact we produced two, uh, wasn't we we discussed it at the beginning of the of the project, but uh, we didn't plan it completely uh, because we thought that uh, because we are working with such marginalized. Uh, um, uh, young women and, and girls, we need to see whether this is at all something that we can do because of these issues related to representation, because the way, uh, you know, migrant girls have been portrayed as mainly uh, victims of trafficking and really very heavy 
um, representational uh, burden that they were carrying with themselves. Um, so we were we didn't set out the research in a way that uh, we integrated the film straight away into a project. We started with long-term ethnographic anthropological work for about two years, uh, similarly to what Nihal described, this kind of establishing the trust, really learning from the communities, um, and and also allowing these girls to 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 get to know us as researchers and as women who lived in these communities for a long time, because each of us spent some time. Um, there. Uh, so eventually, uh, we also realized that, you know, academic research has its boundaries. Uh, it speaks to certain audiences. So how do you reach out further than that? How do you bring other type of people into a conversation? How do you bring out, how do you bring the issues that we research, uh, you know, for years and, and really meticulously and paying attention to all these ethical uh, issues related to it? How do you bring this, how do you how do you first present this to wider public? Because you cannot do it in an academic way with, you know, very sophisticated academic language that at the end, you know, most of the people don't relate to. Um, but also, how do you uh, how do you present it in such a way that it doesn't abuse um, uh, the type of relations, the, the, the relational aspect that you've established uh, in your research, that it's really on the terms of these these in our case, these young women and girls who um, who opened up uh, to us, who opened up their stories, who, who who somehow shared very difficult life circumstances. So the idea of the film came to our minds, and um, and uh, uh, I I work with film. I worked with film before, so uh, you know I had this experience of uh, visual representation, which uh, wasn't uh, always easy. Marina also was involved in a film project in one of her researches in Yemen. So, um, so she also uh, um, had an experience from that uh, from that time, uh, and our experiences weren't the weren't the most positive. So we were extremely, um, I would say, and this is where the sort of feminist ethics came into play. We were extremely careful how we're going to do it and in what way and with whom. So the process took a uh, took a long time. But I think what we've achieved, we've created these two films. Uh, one, the shorter version, uh, Time to Look at Girls. It's uh, it's more of an educational um, film uh, for, you know, classrooms, sort of NGOs, uh, you know, people who, civil society organizations, people who work um, with these issues. And then the other version, and this was actually a decision of the filmmakers with whom we worked, um, they suggested that the issues are so important that we really open up, open it up even further than than that group, and that we do a film that can be screened at uh, film festivals. So that's the longer version, two two girls, and I have to say that it's been extremely successful in a way of being screened across the globe. Uh, you know, uh, over fifty times, I think took took part in uh, something like 25 film festivals and I think won 10 awards. So so it's about, and I, I had um, friends of mine who, who saw the film at a film festival, for example, in Poland, who called me afterwards and said, you know, I would have never really learned these things if I didn't see this film, if I didn't go to the first film festival and I didn't uh, uh, um, uh, watch it. I would have never known that there are these girls migrating, and if I heard about them, I would hear about them in that, you know, negative way that they are being portrayed as victims. Um, so, so we really reached a very wide audience, I think, and that was that was the idea. Um, so that these kind of creative methods allowed us to do that beyond the, you know, the, the rather narrow academic uh, circle in which we circulate all. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I appreciate hearing about how, um, you know, that method of uh, filmmaking, which is a, a big undertaking in itself, how it evolved out of kind of a necessity or, um, you know, bringing everybody's um, backgrounds together and just thinking creatively about how to get this message to a a larger audience or um, get people engaged a bit more. And I'm really intrigued by um, sort of the multidisciplinary um, and collaborative aspects of the project um, altogether, like um, you uh, involved a professional videography team, and then the participants themselves took on roles. Um, you described how research participant one of the research participants became a film coordinator. One of them organized and hosted screenings um, in Ethiopia. Um, so, how did they understand the complexity of integrating filmmaking and the research? Um, is there more to say about that? Mm. Yes. Yeah, so we really worked with very different approaches. And I think um, in the chapter, I describe also how sometimes it was extremely difficult to navigate that. Uh, because at different times, uh, even though we kind of set up uh, initially a more of a participatory, collaborative, open process and that everybody can contribute. But at the same time, you know, we work with professional filmmakers who have their own goals and their own ideas about what a professional film should look like. Um, uh, we work with with these uh, these young women uh, who uh, decided this was their decision and and and, and their um, sometimes uh, I think it came from their own ambition to tell their own story and to really um, tell the story to a, to a, to an audience. We talked a lot about. Um, protecting their privacy because you know in film, uh, I mean that's these are these are young women who are in extremely marginalized uh, positions. Uh, you know, two of them were sex workers, uh, two worked in garment factories, so extremely you know difficult circumstances. And revealing uh, their stories to even their own communities could have been uh, really difficult for them to take and might have jeopardized their own positions in the community. So as researchers, we were, we were, uh, you know, trying to protect, protect uh, the research participants all the time, uh, to a point that uh, the the young woman who became the coordinator, as I mentioned, said to us, "Look, look, this is our story. This is my story. And if I want to tell the story, I want to tell it on my own terms." Um, and I think this was extremely powerful for us to kind of step back as researchers, and and to say. All right. This is. We also have to respect the fact that uh, that they come with their own ideas, their own aspirations, and the film for them became their own project. Um, and I think uh, I don't know to what extent, uh, from their perspective, the the filmmakers or the research participants initially, or the protagonists of the research really understood the kind of, you know, complexities of anthropological research. I am not sure about this. I think, uh, in a sense, we as researchers, we understood it too too fully. So we were very often as the blockers of the process because we were trying to stop, you know, we were seeing everything as an abuse. And and in fact, sometimes it was the the, the, the filmmakers themselves who would say, look, I... I cannot film this girl. She's too young. And I feel like if I put the camera in front of her, it will be violence. So I do not want to do this. So you see, I think this is where in the chapter, I also described this, how our our, our different positionalities, on the one hand, um, brought us apart. And sometimes we had these competing goals of, you know, what is the goal of the film and how the film should look like. But at the same time, I think allowed us also to negotiate and to really come to terms and to grips with these key ethical issues that this project required us to address in different ways than if we were only doing it from the sort of feminist anthropological perspective. So even if the the the, the filmmakers or the participants didn't, you know, understand the complexities of anthropological research, they understood complexities of 
their own fields from which they were coming, their own lives. And I think for me, this is what really um, brought the whole discussion of ethics of care and solidarity and understanding the complexities of this concept um, in that process together. Yeah, that's really the theme of the chapter, isn't it? And um, your title takes up this core issue, um, whose voice and for whom. So whose voice is represented or produced through documentary film, which is a highly effective medium, and for whom? Um, For whom should the creative representation be produced? Um, It's an overarching theme in the book itself. And so I'm wondering if any of you, if each of you want to comment on um, the difficulties in academic research of sharing and distributing authorship um, of creative outcomes when participants make significant contributions in terms of um, knowledge and cultural production. And in the book, there's also a chapter by Marie Godin and um, George Idona on um, copyright in photography in projects that involve um, photography with undocumented photographers in Calais, France. Um, so it's a very pressing issue that I think um, is uh, comes up throughout the book. Um, so does anyone want to speak to that a little bit? I can't. I can't speak about it. Um, uh, I would. I would say, as I used, to, I, I teach community-based research. Um, I, I I teach research methods in general, and I teach more specifically community-based research. And I used to tell my student, academia is <clears throat> is a community, a colonial community that's not different from any other uh, colonial communities. So um, we 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 need to. Uh, figure out a way how we can decolonize these communities by uh, uh, giving voice to our participants first, and then by uh, addressing the ethical challenges that face us as researchers and participants. And um, when it comes to publication also, it's important to address that throughout the research or the study design. Um, Publication should be included in the study design. In a way, ownership should be honored by those who most contributed and made uh, the the study. Um, I guess we still need uh, a lot of work to do in this uh, this field because um, as you may know, it's still like we, even as peer researchers, we are emerging in this field. It's still dominated by Western white uh, academics who are like well respected, but also we need to 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 emerge and we need to show our voices. Thankfully, there are uh, many opportunities, and there are many research projects that. Um, addresses these issues and it starts to become um, a field in the research uh, to be uh, addressed and discussed. One of which this, uh, this this book and I hope many will come soon. So are you talking about um, expanding um, expanding the voice um, and and this has decolonial overtones to me in what you're saying. So um, opening the field to um, those with lived experience and highlighting them as authors of the work. Am I interpreting that right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is why I meant, um, um, because we we need to give them credit because um, they are the ones who are pushing us up and they are the ones who are making the real work. So, we need, uh, we need them also to emerge. We need the influences to, to be heard. And this is our job, to empower them, to empower their voices, to push them up. Um, and I, I was, um, it was interesting, like, about the language that we deliver our research. Like, sometimes we, we write in a, in a jargon that never been understood by our participants. How we also can make this language 
more simple, uh, simple that can be understood and how we can deliver these, uh, these um, findings and information through our uh, peer researchers. The work doesn't stop once we've done data collection. The work continues because they, are, they can bridge the academic community with local communities. Nihal, did you want to add to that? Um, so basically, um, actually, after the, the installation uh, that I participated in the Buffer Fringe Festival, right afterwards, uh, I joined the festival organizing team as one of the uh, creative directors. And I think the, the, the past two years uh, through the festival, um, I really found the opportunity um, to think at the intersection of art and anthropology and, and in what way we can decolonize the narratives that have been very divisive uh, in the context of Cyprus, in arts and in anthropology. And it has become let's say the festival has become a space and an opportunity to explore a new understanding of space that can enable resistance and co-creation beyond the liminality of a post-conflict buffer zone and the pandemic in 2020 and 2021. And actually um, with many collective discussions, uh, I've had the chance to really work on the theme of the festival in 2022 and our open call um, just closed and it's very exciting to see all of the diverse uh, artistic projects coming in with the theme um, Pockets Beyond where the aim is really to initiate a discussion on who is visible, invisible and why because a pocket may look like a blind spot but blind spots resist the logic of the mainframe and go beyond, let's say, um, expected ways of seeing. And we ask, um, is there a place for me to live and, and to, to create? And I think this questioning really captures the essence of an ethical and moral stance, which is an entanglement that comes together while trying to bring people, art and anthropology, uh, together. That's exciting. So you're really in the throes of producing another art festival in a few months, right, in the buffer zone as you're still um, engaged in your doctoral studies, really integrating art and research there. Um, Cassia, did you want to add to that about, um, I was sort of noting that your chapter's approach really um, is uh, very deliberate in its theoretical underpinnings of feminist standpoint theory and decolonial methods. Um, I wondered if you wanted to add to the discussion about authorship and knowledge production. Uh, yes, definitely. Um, yes, we very uh, in that chapter. I was extremely deliberate about this. I also think because these uh, these approaches allow us to push the debates further, as Adnan already mentioned. Um, but I think it's not only about, I think the problem with these approaches is that um, we still do them within a very neoliberal system of academia, which, uh, which doesn't uh, appreciate, you know, collaborative work, which doesn't appreciate collaborative uh, articles that are written by 15 participants. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it comes... Um, it really, it's a contradiction in terms because the academic world in which we live, it's it's around the individual egos. Um, and this is what, you know, at the end, what is counted in your points that you need to get for that or the next position. Um, you know, very often young academics, I see this, a, a lot of young academics, postdocs, you know, they prefer to go for a single uh, author article um, and to emphasize their voice and their contribution as if, even if they use feminist methods, as if they were the only ones producing this knowledge, you know. So, so there is that huge contradiction, which I think that tension um, allows, um, I would say, more established academics to push the boundaries because they don't need to worry that much about their position. But they are not necessarily 
willing to do that that often. And the younger ones are put at this disadvantage. And they, so they have to fight against the, you know, a huge machinery. Uh, and I think it's important to stress that because I think there is a willingness uh, in some disciplines, not in all disciplines, but I think anthropology uh, comes to terms with, you know, with colonial past and, and this heaviness, cultural studies also. I think uh, to some extent social work, I think also has some of these reflections. Um, other disciplines, probably less so. Um, but I think we need to push these debates further. Uh, it, it, you know, they need to go to the level of what is, uh, uh, you know, what is valued in academia, and how how our uh, research and the approach to research is is uh, is valued. And I th- I want to say also another thing about this uh, authorship and and creative uh, participation, which for me in our project. Um, with the film was extremely important. And I think that's maybe one of the sort of the colonial ways of also um, opening up a debate who can speak on behalf of others and who can then share the research. And the film allowed us um, to actually, for these young women uh, who participated in the film, to become those who disseminated the research further. They used these films to go into their own communities, to create debates, to show it with their peers, you know, access which would, we would have never had. But because it was language of film and not a language of an academic article or a report, which they wouldn't have been able to do um, and translate uh, um, for the sake of their communities, the language of film was appealing, was something that they could share. They could easily then create a debate. Um, and we shared this, you know, we, we, sh- we, we showed this film across the different settings. So in Ethiopia and in Bangladesh and in Sudan, and these different young women um, felt that not only that they could speak to their own communities, but these different communities were able to then comment upon, um, add their own voices to the debate. Uh, and for me, that's you know that's a decolonial way of seeing that people are able to speak out, that we create these spaces of of, uh, of debate, um, and we've included that in the analysis of our research. We've included these debates. Um, so that's the kind of practical side of uh, what the coloniality, at least for me, uh, mean in this uh, in this context. Um, just to conclude, I'm wondering, uh, Kasia, if you want to speak a little bit about um, any further projects. I'm curious what's um, next for you on the horizon. Um, I think the project that uh, might fit into today's discussion about uh, arts and collaborations is the project that I'm currently doing at the Peace Research Institute um, in Oslo. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a collaborative project that looks at uh, artistic inspiration of artists uh, who work in the context of war and exile, but also exiled, uh, exiled artists uh, um, in uh, in Europe, in several European countries, um, and artists who live in conflict zones or uh, you know political violence in Myanmar and Sudan, and in this project, we're really trying to bring together uh, different ways of knowing, uh, anthropological, historical, but also psychology, and then really artistic ways of knowing. So so we're looking at different types of artistic creation. We work with dancers, with uh, filmmakers, with photographers, with writers, with musicians, um, and trying to understand how these different collaborations uh, can bring a different understanding uh, to the experiences of, um, of war, exile, violence, conflict, um, and how these different um, ways of knowing not only um, open up places for for greater understanding, but also how can they be appreciated in disciplines that are, um, you know, much more focused on conflict resolution or finding solutions to a particular situation. So this is our challenge, how we bring the sort of humanities and social sciences together and how we also make um, this type of research um, heard, uh, appreciated, but also understood. I think that's, that's really the point. Um, by people in, in, in policy uh, um, levels, policy positions. Um, it's a challenging process because, um, as uh, I think as Niha was saying, how, how this process comes together and what you, what you open yourself up to, uh, it's actually an open-ended process. So it's not something that you can pinpoint and say, we go from here to here and this is where we arrive and that's the end of the research and that's the outcome. 
you really don't know. And and sometimes you can kind of have to uh, let go of your uh, of your uh, um, researchers uh, also training. Uh, this kind of very often positivist training, as, as uh, you know, comes from these disciplines in which we are uh, about you know what is knowledge. Um, uh, how, how subjective is this process? What is what does it mean to know objectively? You know, we're questioning this so much. So, I think um, I don't know what will come out of it, but but uh, but I feel this is an important uh, project. It's an important engagement, and uh, and I see that at least at the Peace Research Institute there is an opening and and um, and willingness to to bring these debates. Um, to researchers who work, you know, quantitatively, who, who think through numbers, who think through policy advice, um, who think through solutions to the conflict, rather than understanding uh, uh, the situation and situations uh, in a more uh, multi-layered and, and complex and you know situated knowledges um, way. So that's for us. Well, that sounds really interesting and exciting. Um, Great. Well, thank you, everybody, for participating in this interview. It's really been interesting. I loved reading the book, and um, it's really been a pleasure to bring it to um, even more people. So thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.